Today is 9-11. That means different things to different ones of us. I'm told in the generation that was around when Kennedy was assassinated, everybody knows where they were that day. And I think for this new generation, we all know where we were that day on 9-11-2001. Now some of us were in our mama's bellies. Some of us weren't even a, a thought in our parents' eyes. Some of us were in school. Some of us were working. Some of us were retired. Some of us were called to action as a result of those events. And over the 21 years since, if you would take some time this afternoon and reflect back on how God has led you from that fall, crisp, beautiful day in September of 2001 to this fall, crisp day in September 2022, you might find that your walk with God, your relationship to God, has not been in a straight line, but it has been a twisty, curvy, hilly road. A road in which God has taken you places you never thought you could live, a place where you never wanted to stay, and yet you find yourself here this morning, gathered with God's people, listening to his word. And so I pray that today, what you would see and hear from the text as we open our Bibles to the very first chapter in 1 Samuel, is that we as Christians would take heart because God's work in us is a foretaste of his coming kingdom. I'm going to repeat that. This is the big idea. Christian, take heart. No matter what your circumstances are, the work that God is doing in you now is a foretaste of his coming kingdom. This is a story that we will read, uh, we will be looking at this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 11. Now, I'm going to ask a big thing of you. I'm going to ask that you really do read these passages each week. You've got a sermon card, and I'll just confess, this is a little bit of a stretch for me. I'm not used to telling everybody where we're going to be in two or three weeks, let alone two or three months. I'm kind of a, like a week-to-week historically. So this is good. It's stretching me out. But these are big chunks of Scripture, and therefore, we're not going to be able to read every word of the text, which is where the onus is on you to invest in that each week and to be thinking. You'll notice on the back of the blank sermon outline, yes, maybe someday I will be fully sanctified and there will be an outline. But until then, I just want you to hear the story of what we are learning from this text today. You can write your thoughts, but you'll notice on the back side of that today, not only are there life group questions uh, that are of the generic nature for the last few months, but we've got some new, more specific ones that will be being discussed in our life classes. So I pray that they will be a blessing and a help to you in your consideration of how this passage relates to us. So what we're going to do is think of a story where you are introduced to the characters in the beginning and you get a little background of what their life is like. It kind of tugs on your heartstrings. It draws you in. That's what we see in the opening verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We see that there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophon. Now, 
If you're paying really close attention, I'm going to pronounce these names differently week to week. I'm just going to own that up in front, okay? So this guy lives in this city of the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohem, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So if you do the research and you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 33 through 38, you'll find that actually Elkanah was a Levite. Even though he's in Ephraim, or Ephraim, he is a Levite of the descent. He's not of the priestly line, but he is of the line of Levi. He is in that tribe that was set apart and scattered among the tribes of Israel who were to serve God. So that's an important note. And then we are also introduced into another little twist by the narrator. Did you notice this? He draws us in. Two things stand out. Elkanah the Levite has two wives. One wife had children and one did not. Now what are we to make of these two wives? Are we to conclude that this is a wicked man? Or are we to say that not only is he wicked, but he's also wealthy because the cost of supporting two wives was a cost? Or perhaps the narrator actually gives us a little clue and provides the answer for us. Notice of the two, which was introduced first. It was Hannah, then Penina. Perhaps the narrator is giving us a clue that Elkanah married Hannah first, But due to her barrenness, his marriage to Peninnah was of necessity to produce offspring in order to preserve the family. Now, this is a different culture than our day and age, so let me just be clear that there were no 401ks or Social Security and the like during this day and age in Israel's history. So, A parent's security in their old age came through one means alone. It was their children. They had hoped and prayed that they would have children and that they would raise them in such a way that those children would be responsible and good caregivers for their retirement. We do it differently, right? But in this day and age, we have to give a little bit of slack to Elkanah for his actions. But here is the rub. And I'm going to just tell you this too. I'm going to look down a lot today because this is a big passage and there's a lot I want to say and I don't want to get distracted. So don't think that I'm ignoring you, but I want to make sure that I respect your time and that we get through this. Here's the rub. Already we see in the characters of the story, there's three of them, We learn some details about them, and we discover that in one house we have two wives, one who has children and one who does not. And so the question automatically has to begin, what is going to happen next? And that's what verses 3 through 8 tell us and show us. They give us the family backstory, and what this shows us is what happens on an ongoing reality, a struggle, a yearly occurrence. We learn that this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
So this is a religious family. This is a devout family. There were certain set-apart feasts during the year for the Israelites where they were to leave their homes no matter how dangerous it was, no matter how remote they were, and they were all to gather where the tabernacle was, the ark was, and they were to worship the Lord. And we see here a man who did that. Regardless of the cost or the inconvenience, he made that travel every year with his family. So they're faithful to observe God's covenant and attend these yearly sacrifices. And in my mind, this further reinforces the idea that Alkanah should not necessarily be characterized as a wicked man because we see that he's a devout worshiper of God. But if you look at verses 4 and 5, you discover that like us, Elkanah had a blind spot, and that is that he loved Hannah, and he gave her a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, you know having two wives is a trouble, but then to display such bias publicly could have some enormous implications. And before we really talk about that. Let's just look at the phrase that is included there. We're tipped. The, 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 the hand is tipped. It's exposed a little bit. God is the one who had closed Hannah's womb. Now, this is a brief word with enormous implications. It's highly unlikely that this would be a comfort to Hannah, but it would help each and every one of us to remember that she is not the first woman recorded in Scripture who was childless. If you go back to Genesis 11, we learn of Sarai, or Sarah, as she would come to know, Abram's wife. She was barren until the age of 90, and then God gave her the promised son, Isaac. In Genesis 25, just a generation later, we learn that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had no children the first 20 years of their marriage until God opened her womb. And once again, in Genesis 29 and Genesis 30, we read of the struggles in Jacob's home as a result of Rachel's barrenness. Now you fast forward to the time in which 1 Samuel is written, the time of the judges, and you read Judges 13 and you find that there was a man named Manoah whose wife was barren until God miraculously gave her a son named Samson. And we can't forget that the New Testament opens with an aged and childless Elizabeth to whom God gave a son named John, and that son would introduce Jesus to the world. Now, we might be able to see, see these Old Testament examples, and they say, well, Hannah should have had hope. But others could say that there's no guarantee that God would do for Hannah what he had done for others. I think it's enlightening that in his commentary on 1 Samuel, Davis, Davis notes this, barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption. Whether it be the promised seed Isaac, or the father of Israel in Jacob, or the savior or preservers of Israel in Joseph, who came from Rachel, Samson, or Samuel or the forerunner of the great king of kings, John the Baptist. So what we may see as a drawback, a failure, a disappointment in the barrenness of Hannah may actually be the result of God's divine purpose. And this is his right as our creator. 
And here's something interesting in the Old Testament, just in these examples I've shared with you this morning. We can see this repeated pattern, not just in women who want to have children but are barren, but over and over throughout the Scriptures, where God will take His people in a moment of helplessness and weakness, without hope and without resources, and He delights to deliver then. Impossible situations seem to be where God stretches forth his hand from heaven and works mightily on behalf of his people. And so if you this morning are dealing with such infirmities or stigmas or weaknesses or trials, understand this may actually be the starting point for you to see God work mightily in your life. Ezekiel 34 says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. The Lord says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. Christian, let us never lose trust in the character of our God. He is good, He is wise, and He is loving. He is most glorified in our weakness. And I pray that this truth would be a wellspring of encouragement for you. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you see the rivalry between the wives. This intensity and regularity of Penina's attacks. We're told that she would provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her. And this went on year after year. She used to provoke her. This was not just an occasional instance. It seems to have become a cycle within this household. It was unpleasant for Hannah. It was inescapable for Hannah. Even when they came to where the Ark of the Covenant was and came to worship the Lord, even there, at the time of worship, This was front and center. While Hannah's barrenness provides the occasion to provoke her, one actually wonders if the root cause isn't because Elkanah favored Hannah. Now we see Elkanah's attempt to comfort Hannah. Look at verse 8. What does he say to her? Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now, these are not like he really doesn't know. Because we're told right then, am I not more to you than ten sons? So how should we judge Elkanah? Is he well-intentioned but clumsy in his delivery? Or is he completely clueless to his wife's heart? Well, to our ears, it may sound like he's a little heartless. In effect, saying, you don't need a child, you have me. To which many of our wives are like, (laughs) what a gift that is, right? Sometimes we act like children, right? We need to grow up a little bit. But interestingly, the phrase that he uses is similarly recorded in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15. And Naomi, remember, Naomi goes to Moab with her son, with her husband and her two sons during a serious famine in Israel. And while she's there, her husband dies. Both of her sons marry, but they both die. And she hears that there's stuff growing back in Israel, so she's going to go back home. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite, says, I'm going to leave my family. My heart is knit to yours. And 
Over the course of God's work in the book of Ruth, we see Naomi uh, introduces uh, Ruth to Boaz, and Boaz marries Ruth, and then God gives Ruth a child. His name is Obed. He's the grandfather of David. He is going to be Naomi's retirement plan. He's going to take care of his grandmother and his mother. This is life-giving to this woman who's lost everything. Now listen to what her friends say to her as they celebrate the birth of this son. They state that Ruth loves you and is more to you than seven sons. So I think what Elkanah is trying to communicate is his genuine and sincere love for his wife. Practically speaking, how should we enter the suffering of those who long for a child but don't have one? I mean, for most of us, having a, children, having a child is, has not been a struggle, but for some of us, it has. And this passage is clear in the struggle of a, mother who wants to, of a woman who wants to be a mother and cannot. And so we need to speak of this for a moment. For those struggling with childlessness, it can be incredibly isolating especially within a Christian community that's built around families and all the attention that's placed on children. So reaching out and including those couples without children in activities or get-togethers, having a meal with them and interacting with them, not as though they're different, but they are just your brothers and sisters in Christ, that will mean a lot to those families. When you're struggling with childlessness, it can be easy to believe that God's blessing on you is being withheld, that he isn't showing his favor to you, and that seeing others with children can really provoke you to thinking that God doesn't love you. Well, this is another example of why we need to hear the gospel on a regular basis. When we gather together, because the gospel teaches us that due to our rebellion against God, he doesn't owe us anything except judgment for our sins, and yet in spite of those sins, God chose to love us, and he demonstrated that love by sending his only son to die in our place, to redeem us. Now, that mouthful contains in a lot of important truths, so let me quickly unpack some of it. God knows what it is like to lose a child, and for those, a loss of a child can be never having one, but yearning for one. Further, God divinely exchanged his sinless son, Jesus, for sinners like you and me. And since God did that out of love, not based on anything we've ever done or ever will do, it comes from his heart. How can then we ever doubt that he truly loves us? I mean, don't let your circumstances dictate to you a poor theology. God's love for you is always for you, Christian. It never shrinks. It's not like the Grinch's heart that it needs to grow. God's love is constant for his children. And so in the gospel, we find a corrective to wrong feelings and wrong thinking. And as a result of hearing the gospel and being reminded, no, God indeed does love us to such an extent that we would never love and to such a level that we could never love, we find that we are given a new identity and a place of belonging. Practically speaking, 
belonging and being included with others, the majority of which have children, alleviates a sense of isolation and it dispels the concept, the notion that God doesn't love us because we are surrounded by people who have been changed by God's love and they demonstrate that love to us over and over and over again. Now, if you find yourself as one of those families that are struggling with infertility or childlessness, let me just encourage you that even if God doesn't grant you the blessing of children, it does not mean that God is not done with you. His ways are perfect, and he loves and cares for you. And there is so much gospel work that waits for you. And so we as a church ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And each one of us, regardless of infertility or any weakness, any infirmity, any struggle, we have all been divinely called and gifted to serve Jesus Christ as members of this church. It's okay to grieve. And sometimes we, we feel like we have to put on a show. We can never, ever let anybody know that we're struggling. That is not the community of Christ. The community of Christ is one that's rooted in truth. I am struggling, so please pray for me. I am grieving, so please consider me. You don't have to be happy all the time or put on a brave face during trials. But you know what the blessing of being a part of a community is? Where you know people have your back is that you can share burdens with them and you have confidence that not only are they praying for you, but they will be there, unlike Job's great friends, they will be there quietly with you. They will just mourn with you. And they will celebrate with you. But we need to hasten on. The storyteller is calling us to continue. And we see that in verses 9 through 18, having been exposed to these characters and the, and the turmoil and the struggles that's going on within this house, the narrator moves us on to a particular occasion in verses 9 through 18. And we see that of one of those feast times, that here he slows way down and he unfolds for us the yearly feast. So they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh and Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We see this transition. Her frame of mind in verse 10, she is bitter, she is in anguish, and in her prayer, as the family has just finished the sacrifice, and then after you offer the animal and sacrifice, the priest will give you a portion of that animal, and you as a family will eat it there in the presence of the Lord, and the sorrow in her heart and the mocking of Penina is so strong that she has to leave the family, and she has to go see God all by herself. This is a woman who's in great mourning and grief. And notice her prayer has two requests. She asks first that the Lord of hosts would look on her affliction and remember her and not forget. 
Hannah's use of God's covenant name ought to remind us that as a member of the covenant community of Israel, God's promises to the whole nation are also promises to each individual. In other words, if God observed the affliction of his servant Israel, as we see in Exodus chapter 3, when he speaks to Moses in the wilderness as he's taking care of sheep through that burning bush, and God says, I have seen the affliction of my people who were slaves in Egypt, then Hannah had every confidence that if God cares about the whole nation, he cares about a single individual. This is really important theology for us Christians. God loves us individually. Individually, he is aware of our lives, our struggles, our needs. And so, God cares for the nation. He cares for an individual within that community. And notice, so first she asks, God, remember her and don't forget. And she's using covenant language, the name of God and the covenant language of remember me and don't forget. And then secondly, she makes a specific petition. She asks, not for a child, but for a son. And notice, she doesn't ask that her son would be special, make a great man out of him, use him in this way. I want him to be the next governor of South Dakota. She's not asking for these kinds of things. Just make uh, a way for me to have a son. And if you do, I promise to give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. She will dedicate her son to the service of the Lord. Using the Nazarite vow that we read of in the law. In Numbers chapter 6. Now before we move on, when you read this woman's prayer, do you find it cold and formulaic? Or do you see that it is something heartfelt and personal? I think we see the latter, right? This is a woman who is just laying it out there. Never doubt that the people in the Old Testament lacked intimacy with God. We don't see that here, right? She's not using special insider language. She's not going through some ritual. She's praying out of the burdens of her heart This is one of many examples in the Old Testament where we see people had a relationship with God that was just as real and just as intimate as yours and mine. They lacked understanding about Christ, but they did not lack understanding that God was the one they needed and they cried out to him and cast their burdens on him just as we read from Psalm 55 this morning. Here's a woman who's pouring out to her heart, her sorrow, her anguish. It, it is so heavy on her, it prevents her from even speaking. As Eli notices in the next verses, she's moving her lips, but she feels absolute freedom to pour out her supplication to the Lord of heaven and earth, the God who kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who she is confident will hear her prayers as, too, as well. So Christian, let us never think for a moment that our prayers need to impress God by our vocabulary or some theological formula. I think this is one of the many benefits of pastoral prayers that we try to uh, lead us as a church and a congregation in. It's simply to teach one another how to pray. To pray from our hearts with cries and groanings 
to express an absolute dependence on God, to say we know we are weak, we know we lack purity and holiness in these areas, we know that we struggle to share the gospel, we know that we are too tired at times to disciple our children and we just want them to be better all on their own. We know that the Lord hears the cries of the needy and the humble. But you notice, Eli is watching in verses 12 and 13. And he wrongly assumes that she's drunk. Now this is going to tip us to certain things are changing in the culture of Israel. If you could have someone who comes into the place of worshiping God and sacrifice who would be drunk. And that sets us up for next week. So read ahead. Thinking she's drunk, he rebukes her in verse 14. And she defends herself in verses 15 and 16. I am not drunk, Lord. I've been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. And what does Eli tell her in verse 17? He gives her a blessing. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Her response to Eli demonstrates just how troubled she was. And it also helps us understand why Eli had to comfort her and say, you can go in peace, sister. God has heard your prayers. Now, his blessing in verse 17, we need to understand for a moment. Eli is not speaking like I could to you as a pastor. All right? Eli stands in a unique position as God's representative to Israel. In a real sense... Unlike elders today, in that day and time, the high priest who was there to offer up sacrifices was to be God's man for the people. He was to communicate, and there was an assumption of those who gathered there that, in fact, we are hearing God's mind on this matter when we talk to him. We understand that Eli understood this because he says in chapter 2, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? God's going to hold the priest and the prophet accountable if they misrepresent him to the people. And so here is a woman who is understanding that as she hears this blessing from Eli, he is much more than just a man. He is speaking God's blessing to her. That's the difference between Elkanah's words to her. Honey, I love you. I'm better than ten sons. Versus Eli, the priest. Go in peace. God has heard your prayer. And he will grant the petition that you've made to him. So we see this reality. Look at verse 18. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And that while addressed to Eli, remember, he is the representative of God. She's really speaking that to God. God has told her through his mouthpiece, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to bless you. And she is responding to God. I, as your servant, I am so grateful that I have found favor in your eyes. And notice, the one, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What had changed in her circumstances? Nothing, right? I mean, she's still without a child. And yet, her countenance, her disposition, her attitude, her outlook, it was all different It was a wholly different woman who came to that place of worship than the woman who left it. 
And isn't that our prayer that each and every week as we gather together with God's people, that God does that life-transforming work in our midst so that people who come into these doors with burdens and are heavy laden and people who come in who don't know Christ will then leave relieved of those burdens and knowing Jesus. Hannah is comforted. Confident that God had heard her prayer, she was able to go her way to be relieved of the stress of Penina's accusations and her mocking, to be able to be relieved of the burden of this. In her culture, in her mind, childlessness was associated with shame, but yet her face is no longer sad. She was changed even though her circumstances hadn't. And this, my friend, is a picture of faith. It is a picture that we pray that all who are weak and burdened would experience such a transformation today. This is the promise that Jesus extends to all who humbly come to him and confess their sin and need for salvation. He will hear the prayers of a humble and contrite heart. And he will change us, gloriously transforming us. He did it for me. A bitter, angry, rebellious person. He changed my heart to be tender. He can do it for you. To experience such love is truly a miracle of God's grace. And everyone who has such an experience will forever be changed. But you notice, as it is with our lives, so it was with Hannah's. This moment, this tension has been resolved. God has heard her prayer, and she is able to leave with with joy in her heart. She's able to enjoy food again, and yet life normally happens. Look at verses 19 and 20. The routine of life keeps going. And Hannah, they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. And then they headed back to their house at Ramah. We see there that this family is worshiping. It's a small but important detail. In spite of Eli's blessing, this family once again worshiped God as they were prone to do. And what it shows me is that they are indeed genuine followers of God. They are not trying to stroke him to get something from him. Because they'd already been promised, right? Eli said, go in peace. The Lord's heard your request. May he grant it. So if I'm just trying to rub the bottle of the genie to get what I want, I've already got what I want, why go back to worship? This shows the heart of this family. And then the the normalcy of life and the routines resume. Looking at verse 19, they went back at their house and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And notice verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. All these things. I mean, the Lord remembered her. Isn't that exactly what she prayed for? God, remember me? This covenant language shows up yet again that we read in verse 11 that goes back to Exodus 2 and Genesis 15 and 35 and 46. In due time also is important to notice. It wasn't immediate. 
It wasn't the first time that she and Elkanah were together. But in due time, she conceived and bore a son. And the significance of his name, Samuel, is that I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the tension starts to build because we wonder, will Hannah, God has delivered, will Hannah fulfill her vow? In verses 21 through 28, we see that this is in fact what is wrestled through. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now, we may think that this is just, you know, putting off. She's just sliding by and trying to soften her vow to the Lord. But she shares that her decision to stay home is to wean the child. And in that culture, that could last up to the age of three. And you look at this, and what do we see in Elkanah's uh, response? It's one of support and prayer for God's blessing in verse 23. Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. In verse 24, and when she had weaned him, She took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. So it's interesting here, if you go back to Numbers and you read uh, the vows of a Nazarite, what Hannah brings when she presents Samuel to the Lord, she brings way more beyond what she was required to under the law. She brings more flour. She brings a bigger animal. She brings, in some debate, whether it was a three-year-old bull or three bulls. I mean, this is a woman who is extremely grateful for God doing what he had done in her life. She's giving above and beyond generously back to the God who has given to her generously. And she declares in verse 26 that her vow has been fulfilled Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Now, this could have been three years prior, or actually three years and nine months, or maybe four years, or maybe five years. We don't know how quickly she conceived. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. What's difficult to see in the English is apparent in the Hebrew. Four times in verse 27 and 28, she uses the same Hebrew root word, shall. It's difficult to see, but it's it's important. So here's a rough translation. She says, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives is one that is asked for Yahweh. Now, we're like, asked, 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 asked. What does all this mean? Eli's blessing was, may the God of Israel give you the asking which you asked from him, back in verse 17. That's the Hebrew. 
May the God of Israel give you the asking which you have asked from him. This asked for one is given a name that has the same root word in the Hebrew, Samuel. Samuel means asked for, as Hannah says in verse 20. So there's this wordplay that's taking place that reflects a sincere and clear understanding of worship. She gratefully is recounting both in the name of her son and the vow that she says has now been fulfilled that this God has heard her prayer and that this God has given her this gift and that this gift is now being returned back to the Lord for his service. Let me ask you this. Does God answer prayer? Absolutely. Hannah is saying, this boy's name means God answers prayer. What I have asked for, God has given. He's a living embodiment of that fact that God indeed does answer prayer. And we are told that he worshiped the Lord there. I think it's Samuel. Hannah's been speaking of him three times already in verse 28. And if you go fast forward to chapter 2 and verse 11, we're told Elkanah went home and the boy was ministering to the Lord. So here is Samuel now, this child given by God, this asked for one who's now being returned to the Lord. We know that he's unique. We'll see this in the coming weeks. He will serve God as prophet, priest, and judge in Israel. He will actually anoint Israel's first two kings. He is totally unique to God's redemption story. And what we see God doing in this godly family, in one sense, sets them apart from all other godly families. God had a unique purpose for Samuel and for Elkanah and for Hannah. And we must not over-apply this to us today. But we do share something in common. And that is this. Every parent should pray that each child God gives them would know and serve the Lord. This is the burden of every parent's heart, is it not? If you're a Christian, you want your kids to know Jesus because he's good. We pray for that. Every Sunday night when we gather as a church and we pray, we pray for the evangelism of the children in this church. We pray for the parents that they would nurture these hearts That even though we're all sinners, that God would overcome our sin as parents and would show abundant grace and he would keep our children's hearts tender to the Lord. We also understand that as Christian parents, our children ultimately belong to the Lord. I mean, I know culture is shifting and kids are staying longer. Don't get any ideas, my kids. You're out very soon, right? But in reality... Children are gifts from God that we steward for a time. We have them for a season where he entrusts them to our care in order to prepare them for a lifetime of service to him. And so we ought to pray for the salvation of all these children in our church. Now, what did Hannah learn from all this? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is really short. You can read her prayer. This is a song that she sings. This is the transformation that she grew to know that she has a God she serves who hears the prayers of her people, his people, and who remembers the covenant that he made with them. 
and who will act and listen and respond to their cries. The first three verses, she gives all glory and praise to God. He alone did this. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. For there, uh, let not the arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You see, Hannah grasped. She grew in her faith that God had indeed raised her up. And because God did this for her, she was able to stand now in front of Paniah and not be ashamed, not to be rattled and riled by her mocking. She's rejoicing in God's salvation. She echoes Moses' song, which ironically in Deuteronomy 32, he taught to the nation of Israel. He was the first to use this image of God as a rock, and that's an image that Hannah drew from in her own song. And so I think what we're seeing here is actually a community that is rehearsing works of God in the past, and that's informing their language. So like when we sing these songs by grace alone, We're teaching our children truth about God that will then be incorporated and woven into the fabric of their own testimonies. And they will grasp these words and they will appropriate them rightly and they will sing, yes, out of the darkness he brought me into the light. Not because of me, but by his grace alone. So Samuel is a gift from God and she gives all glory to God She rebukes her enemy, and she points out that God sees and hears us, and he will judge rightly as a result of what he sees and hears. And then in verses 4 through 8, she gets into the specifics of how the reversal of God takes place. The mighty are defeated. The feeble are strengthened in verse 4. Look at verse 5. The full are hungry, and those that had been hungry are now full. The barren have many children, and the fruitful are now forlorn. This idea of seven children gives the image of completeness. There were seven days in the creation account, six days of work and one day of rest. So she's seeing this total theological picture of what God in his absolute completeness can do in the lives of an individual. He redeems every part of us, and his salvation is full The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises, verse 6. He makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings low and he exalts, verse 7. Verse 8, the Lord raises up the poor. He gives them seats of honor in the midst of princes. People who don't belong there are now welcomed into these high echelons of society. What a reversal. Her experience with God had changed her. She acknowledges that she was ready to die, but God gave her strength. She acknowledges that she was barren, but God has made her fruitful. She was poor, but God has made her rich. But why should she be surprised? Because that is the nature of our God. That's who he is. And this is the way he's worked throughout human history, and this is the way he's worked in your history. Just even as I rehearsed, uh, as we opened with the, where were you on September 11, 2001? I was in the Inner Harbor of Baltimore. We lived there, and we were in a church there. 
We had one son. And from that time, 21 years, to being here to go from the inner harbor of Baltimore to the Black Hills of South Dakota. I mean, like, God is always good. People, we need to be convinced of that. He is always good. It doesn't always feel good, the circumstances we're in, but He is always good. She testifies that God had given her a strength. First Corinthians, you read this passage. We're running out of time, so I'll just give it to you. You read this afternoon if you take time. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 31. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he did this in our salvation. And because of that, we are in Christ who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let us boast in our good God. Hannah's experience and observations have taught her not only what God does personally for her, kind of upsetting the apple cart in verses 4 through 8, but if you look at verses 9 through 10, she says, in fact, I know that God intends to do this universally. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, church. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Expect God to do what he always does, as seen in verses 4 through 8. He delivers people, his people. He defeats his enemies, and he delivers justice. What Hannah has experienced on a small scale, God is going to do universally through his anointed king. I quote one more time from Davis. Each one of Christ's flock should ingest this point into their thinking. Every time God lifts you out of the miry bog and sets your feet upon a rock, it is a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's a down payment of the full deliverance that is coming that will be yours at the last. Elkanah and Hannah, they return to Ramah. Samuel remains in Shiloh. He is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. You know, working through this passage, I noticed how brief the resolutions were to the tension. You have this story, it builds, it builds, it builds, and it comes to this head, and then boom, Hannah hears a blessing from Eli. Hannah goes back home and life resumes, but then a son is born. Hannah tested, will she keep her promise to the Lord? She gives her son to the Lord. And then we see these moments of, they're just done with, but the bulk of this is living in the reality of life, isn't it? It's the grind of day-to-day faith. It's the agony of toil and labor and suffering. The culmination of years of prayer, struggle, and, re- and work, they're, res- they're resolved so quickly and finally many times. But the bulk of the text is about the struggle, the situation, the response. And I think that's why her words in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are so important. Because in our struggle, we learn much. 
about the character and the beauty of our God. That's what it's there for. Hannah learned that when the Lord acts, his victory is immediate and absolute. Now, some of us are dealing with chronic, lifelong illnesses. Some of us are dealing with, we prayed for the salvation of a loved one for decades. Let me encourage you, keep praying. Keep following. We are here with you, praying with you and for you. We will walk this road together because we believe our God is good. And we have confidence that His evidences of grace are just samples of a greater glory and a greater deliverance to come. There are no straight lines or shortcuts in our growth and godliness. As that old hymn says, God leads His dear children along in shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet. God leads His dear children along where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet. God leads His dear children along. It goes on to say, though sorrows befall us and Satan oppose, God leads His dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. Some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, and some through great sorrow. But like Hannah, God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take heart. See that you are at work in our lives, individually and corporately, that you are giving us a glimpse of your coming kingdom, and it is good. It is sweet. We long for it, Lord. We pray that you would deliver your people from childlessness, from pain, from the curse of sin, the struggles that we face. We pray that you would teach us while we are waiting for that deliverance. Teach us how beautiful you are, how good you are, and how great and complete your salvation is. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.